This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everyone. How are you? I can't tell you. Uh, a son of a fisherman from San Diego uh, here at UCSD doing this is uh, it's quite an accomplishment for my family, anyway. And so I can't tell you how proud I am to be here. I also uh, want to tell you that the staff here was fabulous in coordinating this. Brianna, thank you. And she asked me to open this with about being mindful in a mindful entrepreneur. Now, I just want to be clear. I'm not a yogi. I'm not a guru. I'm not a meditation expert. I'm just an entrepreneur who's done a few things, but I've always used mindfulness. And I think I want to tee it up because I don't know how many of you observe people that just seem to cruise through life, smiling all the time, having a really good time, and accomplishing major things. Major things that we would probably say are impossible, but they're, they're accomplished. Um, I have a feeling that mindfulness is behind that. I've been practicing my own practice of mindfulness, which I'm going to share with you, Oh, probably for the last 10 years, or maybe even beyond. But even, you know, a thing like the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, it came out of being mindfulness, the very exercises I'm going to go through with you this morning. So I I think there's big things. The impossible is going to be done by this group. Uh, I love San Diego being the global innovation center. I think it should be. I think we should start buying hotels and making them only for entrepreneurs in the area, Raj. And uh, those are some of the impossible things I'm thinking about right now. But what I want to do is let's just get started with the first thing I want you to do every single day from here on out. And that is maybe just get a little loose. Just do it with me, a little shoulder action. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Feels good, doesn't it? Now I want you to do one thing. I want you to tell yourself how incredible, extraordinary, and awesome you are. Do it right now. Keep telling yourself how incredible, extraordinary, and awesome you are. Just breathe into it. You know, on this very campus, they're making discoveries every day on how incredible the body is. I mean, the body is one of the most incredible processors anyone's ever seen, one of the most incredible fermenting machines anyone's ever seen. So why wouldn't we be incredible, awesome, and extraordinary? So really breathe into that just for a moment. I realize I'm speaking loud, and I should be more like a guru, but I'm not. I can't help myself. So, but just kind of breathe into it. I try and start every single day with thinking that through. And when I question myself, I do think about how my body processed all the food that I ate the night before, how it it secreted certain peptides, which expressed certain genes. I mean, if you really think of the complexity of our own body, you can't help but believe that it's incredible and awesome and extraordinary. And now let me come back to the Innovation Center and why I like this for entrepreneurs. Because there is one thing incredible, awesome, extraordinary people do. What do they do? A guy up at one of those universities I won't mention up north, 
you know, he took his iPhone and said, I want to be able to hold this when any music's playing and know what the song is. Everyone said, can't do it. Too much background noise, impossible, never be done. Never be done. Today, it's the most popular app in the world, over 500 million downloads, over 30 million songs uh, uh, fingerprinted, and it's Shazam by Alan Wong. And so the point I'm making here is he's an incredible, extraordinary, awesome person. So is Elon Musk. But guess what incredible people do? They do the impossible. They do the impossible. So the second pause that I do every day is I ask, what's impossible in my life? What could I do that's impossible? I think about the health cost of health care. There's so many paradoxes of these old legacy industries that you guys are going to have the chance to clean up, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But you've got to think about doing the impossible. So because all incredible, awesome, extraordinary people do is the impossible. So the second pause I take, and this can be why I'm driving, this can be why I'm on the elliptical, this can be any, I take a pause, I do the same thing, I shake my shoulders, and I breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth, and I think about doing the impossible. But I want, you probably are saying, well, that's kind of crap, but let me, let me tell you how I also do it. I never think about the how. I just think about plugging it into my own personal GPS. I'm going to change the price of health care. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I just know I'm going to do it. So you think about it as your own personal GPS. So I'd like to just take a moment. Again, just do three breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth, and think about doing the impossible. Whatever your entrepreneurial venture is right now, I want you to take it up a couple notches. What are you going to do that's going to be, everyone's going to say, wow, that was impossible. Don't think about the how. Just put it in your mental GPS. How many of you have got an impossible that would just blow our minds right now? Anybody? Oh, I love it. Fabulous. So I I just think all of us are self-limiting. All of us, you know, was it uncomfortable to call yourself extraordinary, awesome, and incredible? Probably. It is for me every day. But we are. And we got to get over that because we got a lot to accomplish. And, and so from the impossible standpoint, I want you to be thinking about that every day. I don't care what your venture is today. Just take it up a notch. And I just always call it aspire higher because you can always be down here. But, but if you start up here, even if you only make it 50%, you're still better off than here. So, so just think about doing the impossible. And if it's not impossible, challenge yourself the next day because, remember, you don't have to worry about the how. Just put it out there. Now, here's the second or third part of this. I love working with entrepreneurs who have the same team they've had in the last couple businesses they've started. Whether those businesses succeeded or failed is irrelevant to me. But teams that have done two or three different ventures are really important. I like to invest in those. And I'll tell you why. Because teams only stick together if there's mutual respect, if they've got a trust level. And I I believe the trust factor in a startup, especially in an entrepreneurial venture, is one of the most critical components. And that's why a university setting 
is very trust. I mean, there's a lot of trust in a university setting, which I think is fa- fantastic. But I want to come now to the m- most important mindful part of the day, for me anyway, again, just for me. But it's afternoon, around 2 or 3 o'clock. I, that's when I find my rock. That's when I find a tree. That's when I go to the beach. And I have one exercise. You know, I do try and, you know, quiet my mind a lot as much as I possibly can. Uh, and it's the most difficult part for me. The first two in the morning, telling myself I'm extraordinary, I can do that. You know, I think in the impossible, I can do that. The afternoon becomes tough just to s- slow down, just be quiet. But it's the most critical part of my day as I look at it. Now, what I do is I do the breathing exercises, I quiet my mind. But the most important thing I do is I take an inventory of all the people I touched that day, every single person. And I say, did I inspire them? Did I help them in any way? Was I kind? I mean, how many of us go through our normal day not even thinking about being kind? But we should be kind to everybody. We should be loving to everybody. I know this probably sounds wow, wow, but it's true. Now, why is this so important? The reason it's so important is that if you reflect on that every day, you consciously will be kind, you will be loving, you'll be inspiring the other people. Now, now you're probably kind of getting how this all connects, right? Because everyone around you, everyone in this room, is incredible, extraordinary, and awesome. And they have a slice of something you're going to need. And you have a slice of something they're going to need. I can't tell you how many times I've embarked on a project and someone from seven, eight, nine, ten years ago is the accelerator, is the enzyme that unlocked everything. And it's only because we had a kind and loving relationship. Not all the time. Believe me, I can be, you know, (laughs) yeah, you know what I mean. But uh, the point is, is if you do it every day, you'll be amazed at the people in, in, that you build in your network. You'll be amazed that, you know, Paul asked you to meet two people today. If you're kind to everyone you touch at coffee, everyone you touch on a break, and inspiring in some way, give them a gift, any kind of gift. Give them a gift of inspiration. Everybody that you touch, and it will accumulate. It will get bigger and bigger. And I firmly believe that the mindful entrepreneur is a joyful entrepreneur. And a joyful entrepreneur, people want to be around. And, and I can name many. I can go through that history. I don't think it's relevant right now. I think what's important for this group is that through the course of the day today, you do believe you're extraordinary and incredible and awesome. You're thinking about accomplishing the impossible. And you're kind and inspiring to every single person you touch, you look at, you feel, do it all. And by the way, that virtuous circle of doing it every day will create, you'll just be not only joyful, but you'll create a group around you that just concentric circles of creativity, innovation, and I hope it goes way down (coughs) past the border of Mexico and San Diego does become the Global Innovation Center because you guys are incredible, awesome, and extraordinary. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Anthony, for that very inspiring message. Um, you know, when I think about innovation and awesomeness, um, all of us are innovating every day. Each one of us are faced with challenges that we want to solve. And um, it is the scale of innovation and the impact that we can make with innovation uh, that we're going to try to help you unleash today. We're going to give you tools in the afternoon with concurrent sessions that would enable some of you students who are aspiring entrepreneurs to connect with those resources and learn the path to unlocking your power and really have the broad impact with innovation that you want to have. So <clears throat> next, I'd like to introduce Mike Ren. Who doesn't know Mike in San Diego, right? I mean, come on. Mike is uh, one, of the <laughs> one of the most uh, you know, hot figures in San Diego at the moment. He is developing this incredible um, uh, uh, project uh, to take San Diego-based companies to Silicon Valley. He, so he's developed this beachhead in Silicon Valley, which he's bringing companies up there to showcase them and invite investment from Silicon Valley-based investors into our companies. Uh, Mike was, you know, formerly with DLA Piper, where he worked with hundreds of companies and helped them, you know, get going. He also helped uh, raise hundreds of millions of dollars in capital for those companies. And he's been an entrepreneur himself, being a chief operating officer of a technology company. So please welcome Mike Ren. I think he called me a hot figure. Awesome. Never had that. I just really wanted to tell you how excited we are to be collaborating with UCSD, um, the Pauls, Brianna, Alex, the chancellors, the deans. The school's on fire, and we're looking forward to a lot of history with the school. Um, I, I honestly believe it's on this trajectory to become the Stanford of the South, and they probably don't want me to say that because it's a bad brand, but... Um, when I'm, when I'm talking to, you know, VCs and companies up in the Valley, they're taking note of what's going on here. And that's good for all the universities here. It's good for the region. And it's really awesome. So keep up the great work, UCSD. A um, couple quick updates on Venture Group initiatives. So three weeks ago, uh, we took 35 companies up to the Valley to recruit their engineers in this direction and by all measures, I mean, I think it was a huge success. We had over 700 engineers show up. When we opened the doors at 4 o'clock, the line was down the hall, down the stairs, and out the door. Uh, really awesome. So um, to all the students, make a mental note of that. That's people that are trying to go from Silicon Valley to San Diego, uh, which is great. The second thing we're doing, I need to thank the community. Um, we opened an office in San Francisco last month. Uh, we're the first city to have a satellite office in Silicon Valley. Lots of countries have done it. We're the first city. We raised over $200,000 from 180 people in this community, which is amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, it, office is beautiful, 13th floor, uh, downtown San Francisco, overlooking Transamerica. And the office serves two key purposes. It's one for our companies to go up there and have a hub where they can reach out to investors and also get connections to companies. And then the second piece is for us to be up there as a focal point to start building relationships with investors so that we, and I'm up already up there a lot, I'm meeting with VCs, I'm talking to them, profiling them, sending them deal flow, and that's what sort of starts this relationship building, and it's going to grow over time to where they spend more time here um, we can shop them deals. We've already set up meetings for companies. We're doing it. 
Um, the timing really feels good. I was talking with a couple of folks from San Diego that do a lot of venture work, and they're seeing it too. There's a big uptick in VCs that are looking to get into to San Diego, and that, that wasn't happening a year ago. The LA guys, the, the Silicon Valley people, it's been great. Just last night I got an email from Great Croft, which is a great fund in LA. They're sending somebody down to be a regular, so the timing's great and everything is on the upswing, so we're really excited about that. Um, a note for the students who are here today. I really want to encourage you guys and gals to engage with the business community off campus. It's sometimes hard to get you folks off campus, and I really want to encourage you to do that, and you know, we'll make it easy for you. We cut our prices. It's 20 bucks max, 10 bucks usually. We lose money on that, but we do that because the business community wants to engage with you. And it's not just us, too. Um, there's one event that should be on everybody's radar. It's in mid-June. It's an entire week. It's Startup Week. They do a great job. Um, there's thousands of people there, lots of students. There's a pub crawl right in the middle. That's awesome. You should totally go to that. Uh, and so, so try and do that. And then one last thing for the students, if I can pontificate for a second as, a, as an old guy who's, who's been around a little bit. Um, we did that job fair because we wanted to get in UCSD grads back to San Diego. And I know the lure of the valley, and if you want to go up there and it's your dream and your passion, you should totally do it, go. But, but if you've got a, a, a little bit of doubt and you're not entirely sure, uh, you should just know that the grass is green here and it's, it's getting greener all the time. Um, one indication of that, uh, Sequoia Capital is the preeminent VC firm in the world. And for the longest time, 10 years ago, their moniker was, if you're not within a bicycle ride of our offices, we're not funding you. And fast forward to today, last quarter was the first quarter in their history where they invested more money outside of Silicon Valley than they did inside of Silicon Valley. And so they're seeing what we already know, and that's that you can build a world-class rocket ship ride kind of company anywhere, and certainly in San Diego, and that's why I want to introduce our panelists tonight. Uh, John is awesome, known him for a long time. He's been on the rocket ride. He's at the early stages of a new rocket ride. Uh, but then also, the person we get to interview today is, is Scott, and Classy is absolutely crushing it. Um, raised over 50 million in venture capital. Lots of employees there with stock options, and he's doing it here in San Diego. So with that, I'd like to invite my two friends, John and Scott. Big hand. The thing that build a great ecosystem are you've got to have great people who are driving things forward, right? You've got to have people who you know really care about building a better you know business community and, and place to do business, um, and are going to take you know a leadership position in that, right? Mike is a great example of that, um, and there's a ton of other ones, and they're usually either part of or they're developing great organizations, okay? Um, you know, the, what, that will get you to a certain point, and in my observation, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we had lots of that, um, but we were still a relatively, um, you know, sleepy tech hub or, you know, sleepy community when it comes to that. A lot of good individual companies, a lot of good businesses, a lot of good individual things going on, but what really builds a, a great ecosystem is when those people and those organizations come together 
it really starts to accelerate the momentum. And in my opinion, and you know, Scott and I talked a little bit about it, I think that's the power of um, you know, this Ignite event. And that's a big part of the reason that I was so excited and we were so excited to be a part of it, is when you bring an organization like uh, San Diego Venture Group, as well as TCA and a bunch of other groups that were coming together, and um, University of you know, California, San Diego, and how important that is, and, and as well as the other educational institutions around town, you know, you have something special, right? And, um, you know, again, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be part of, you know, a handful of discussions with business leaders around town, mayor, different mayors, you know, different people. And I can tell you, if you are part of UCSD, um, you are incredibly important to San Diego. And I've been part of so many uh, conversations, usually just listening in on them, but so many conversations around, gee, what are we going to do to keep the talent here in town, right? Such a, a flow of talent up to, you know, L.A., the Bay Area, to other places. And, um, you know, I feel like that tide is finally turning. Like, I feel like, you know, you see it. You see the numbers. People are staying. There's a lot more companies to be part of. The ecosystem is developing. There's always been great companies and great opportunities. It's just coming a lot more to the surface now, um, and it's becoming a lot more avail available. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. So, um, so let's move on to the panel. Um, so, you know, Scott and I had kind of coordinated. You always have these things, and you want to make it look like it's, um, you know, fly by the seat of our pants, but, you know, we had coordinated a bunch of questions um, that I have here. So... Can I say one thing? Yes. So when they sent me the invite, I actually thought I was interviewing John, and I'm <laughs> not kidding, because, you know, I actually looked up for, to John for many, many years, and still do, and so I, I was preparing to interview you, but now it's the reverse, so this is truly an extraordinary moment for me. Cool. Um, so I'm going to try to ask him a few questions and throw him some curveballs yeah. as well. So this will be a, a, a back-and-forth thing. This isn't a one-sided thing. All right, well, hold that friendly sentiment, because <laughs> the questions that we went over, that's not where we're going, okay? I have a bunch of questions here. I've replaced it, so I have a lot of kids, four kids. And I asked them, what questions should I ask Scott about his company? Okay, so the first one comes from Mackenzie, my three-year-old. Mm. If you could be any animal for a day, what would you be? Okay, this is going to sound really weird. You may not want to relay this back to Mackenzie. <laughs> I'm going to have to say a cockroach, and here's why. I've always thought of myself as a survivor. Right. I have this mantra where, you know, regardless of all the things that are going on right now, uh, I, I think to myself, I will outlast you as a competitor. <laughs> I will just keep going and going and going and going. And, you know, there's probably other good examples like that in the animal kingdom that aren't scary and creepy and, and freak people out. Um, but, yeah, I, I think about, I love the, the idea of durability in business and mental toughness. Uh, and I think the cockroach has that. So I'm going to go with that. If I can find a better one that's, like, a little fluffier, I'll let you know. All right. Um, so, I actually have a third list, which is even more challenging. It's questions that I ask folks who are in the audience or, you know, previously asked them. So, um, you know, I, a little bit of background on, let me give you a little bit of background on Scott, a little bit of background on uh, Classy. So, um, Scott's the CEO and co-founder of Classy, the world's leading fundraising platform for social good organizations um, since 2011. Classy has helped more than 3,000 nonprofits and social enterprise Enterprises raise hundreds of millions of dollars, including um, Oxfam, the World Food Program, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, the company was recently recognized by Fast Company as one of the world's most innovative companies in social goods. 
um, as well as 100 brilliant companies uh, on the list of Entrepreneur Magazine uh, and Glassdoor, uh, 2017 top 50 places to work in the United States SMB division, um, which we all know is pretty tough. The other thing that you may not know and was not on Scott's bio, um, People Magazine recently listed Scott as one of the top 50 sexiest entrepreneurs um, in 2016. First I heard of that one. <laughs> yeah. Obvious. Okay, so <laughs> on to the questions. So what, um, what drove you to, let's start at the beginning. What drove you to Star Classy? Um, you know, how did you get it going? Where did the name come from? Yeah, so Mike mentioned uh, Pub Crawl. I thought I was going to be the first one to mention Pub Crawl in this conference. This is now the second mention of that. Uh, Classy actually started with Pub Crawl. I moved to uh, San Diego probably 11, 12 years ago from Boston. I had just graduated uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst doing mechanical industrial engineering, very similar school to UCSD, um, and drove out two days after uh, graduation, landed in Ocean Beach, two friends there, uh, served, had, did the life you know, for several months, and eventually landed a gig at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton uh, doing management consulting. And on the side, I was living with roommates uh, there that had traveled out from the East Coast, and uh, we had this tradition in Boston to do this pub crawl for uh, the Brain Tumor Research Foundation because one of my friends, uh, his uh, father, or brother-in-law, uh, had brain cancer. And so we wanted to carry that tradition forward in San Diego and also meet new people. And my mom had also been uh, battling with breast cancer for five years, did radiation, chemotherapy, all of that together. Uh, and, and we realized everyone in the house had been affected by cancer in some way, shape, or form. We were like 23, 24 at the time, uh, you know, every single weekend going out on Garnett Street and all these things, and we, we figured, hey, how do, what, how do we mix the social part with you know, the giving back part? And so we went online and we looked at different charities and, and landed on the American Cancer Society's website, and nothing really resonated with us. There was this thing called the Relay for Life and making strides, and uh, it didn't connect with us. There were, were, were big sort of traditional events, uh, and we wanted to do something more fun with our friends. We'd bring them out. Um, and so we landed on a pub crawl, um, and we, we organized this thing down Garnett Street, and we, we were using like literally like physical posters and hanging them on door fronts to try to get people, or office fronts or storefronts to try to get people there. Um, and the movie uh, Anchorman with Will Ferrell happened to be on in our apartment uh, when we were, we were talking about this, and my, my buddy Pete said, well, you know, why don't we name it the Stay Classy Pub Crawl, because Will Ferrell's catchphrase in this movie is, you stay classy San Diego, never in a million years thinking this would ever go anywhere beyond a, a simple pub crawl. And so that's what we did. We brought people together. Uh, 75 people showed up. We raised $1,000 for the ACS. And I went back to my Booz Allen apartment. I remember calling them up and being like, hey, guys, you know, we, we did this thing down Garnett Street. Uh, we raised $1,000. It was so awesome. You know, how do I give you this money? And they're like, whoa, 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 what did you do? You know, you're not supposed to do an unsanctioned ACS event uh, outside of the Relay for Life in Strides. And did you use our logo? Who saw this? Like, were you guys drunk? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, poor, poor woman, but she, she really just gave me grief on the phone. And, and, and I was like, so you don't want this $1,000? She's like, no, I want the $1,000. <laughs> But you have to come to this sanctioned event called the Relay for Life in Point Loma. Uh, and I'm like, oh, man, here we go again. So literally, you know, uh, myself and our five roommates show up to Point Loma, and there's 1,000 women walking around a track for 24 hours. This is what this event is. And we're 24-year-old, you know, uh, in board shorts and whatever else. And we walk in, we do three laps, hand them check, and, and get the heck out of there. Uh, but the, the kind of the, the gist of the story and, and the inspiration to us was, you know, why does philanthropy have to be so hard? Why is, this, why is there so much friction in the process of getting involved in the first place? And that led us down a path that literally had nothing to do with technology for years, five years, actually. 
All we wanted to do was bring young people into the fold, uh, make impact more transparent, make the actual philanthropy fun. And so we started hosting all sorts of social events, um, you know, anything from races and runs and that type of thing, more pub crawls, of course. We partnered with the Padres and did big tailgates and concerts. Um, we, we ended up, our, our pinnacle was the 5,000-person music festival in Mission Bay uh, with headliners, Modest Yahoo, who's dating myself, and Bass Nectar before he was anything, and all these students in the room. Uh, and, and there's no longer concerts allowed in Mission Bay. That's our fault. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, and Danza Cove. But we raised uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in that concert for um, a local youth homeless shelter here in town. And it was that concert that sort of uh, gave us the idea to say, hey, you know, the, the systems we've been using to basically collect money for these events that we're doing, the tailgates and all these things, and allow people to fundraise was outdated. We're using Evites, um, MySpace, spreadsheets, whatever. And for the concert, we wanted to basically try to build it ourselves and empower people to create a personal fundraising and uh, reach out on MySpace and Facebook at the time. And so we hired a guy literally off Craigslist who became our third co-founder. So we got extremely lucky. This guy was extraordinarily talented. And he built what, was a, what would, would later become a, 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 or called a crowdfunding platform. Uh, it was a very early version. and allowed people to buy that ticket to the Montesiago concert, set up a personal page, tell their story, and share it on social networks. And the, the nonprofits that we were benefiting were the ones that said, hey, you know, what you guys have built is pretty amazing. We're paying this other company called Blackbaud thousands of dollars for something kind of similar but yours in alpha state in this little event is, is actually quite good. And that was when the, the light bulb moment sort of came on. And we said, all right, like, we knew we didn't have a, a long-term career in, in event planning. This was more of a passion project. Um, how, how do we transform from this initial idea, sort of like in the trenches, market research, working with nonprofits and hosting these events, um, into a platform that could empower their supporters to raise money online? Uh, so we quit our jobs. We did the whole thing. We went through the Connects program uh, at UCSD raised our first $100,000 in seed money from an advisor that we got through the Connect program, and, and we, were, we were on our way. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty incredible story. I mean, I think from, from my perspective, from an outsider's perspective, um, you know, for entrepreneurs and, and folks who are, you know, considering being entrepreneurs, um, you know, they, whoever they is, somebody, says that um, just showing up is, is half the work, right? My observation is that's the really easy half of the, of the work. Um, and what makes you a successful entrepreneur and what makes you an entrepreneur at all is the fact that um, when you show up, you look for opportunities to not just be a participant, but to actually be a driver, right? And, and to take it the next step. And when you see a potential opportunity, it's not to say, eh, and go back to watching Anchorman for the 47th time. It's to figure out, like, all right, maybe there's something here. Maybe we should do something with this. I have no idea where this is going to go, but I'm going to take this opportunity. And you know what the reality is? In 9 out of 10 cases, or 99 out of 100 cases, it really goes nowhere. But you will learn so much just from doing that that the next time you do it, you know, you bring your odds down to 1 out of 50, and then it's 1 out of 20, and the next thing you know, you know you're on your way. So... That's a really good, I think that's a really good point. A lot of people ask, you know, how, how did you plan to become a technology company? The answer is we did not plan for any of this. Right. Um, the only thing we did right was keep going and, right. and keep seeking that opportunity. Every single phase, like even when it was a pub crawl, it sounds so silly, but we saw how people came to that and how excited they were that we were talking about cancer in a new way. And it was a fun, and we just we recognized that that was something special and right. just followed that. Right. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. And, and that is the trap, that curiosity Right. is really a huge driver of success in my mind. Yeah, and that lack of fear, right? So it's the curiosity combined with you know, just the willingness to go forward and do stuff and you know, not really worry what the outcome is. So, um, okay, so you've, you know, let's fast forward a bit. Um, you've clearly, you've scaled the company. 
um, from a handful of folks up to you know a couple of a couple of few hundred people. Um, you know, I, I find there's usually a couple of inflection points where you know things really start to take off, right? You go from being a real early stage company, uh, you know, with a little bit of traction to you know not necessarily on the rocket ship, but you know, really starting to scale. Were there a couple of point a point or two like that? And, you know, what were they like? Yeah, in the early days, I mean, you're, you're typically a company will be 15 and under for for quite a while, a few years, uh, and those are such an that's an, such an important stage. Each stage is sort of important for a different reason. The first stage sets the sets the tone of the culture for forever. Uh, the 15 people that are there, the culture, the values, the mission, I call it the core, uh, is really a reflection of them, their collective opinions, their, what they stand for collectively, and that becomes the brand. And so those people, that mix, that ingredient, those ingredients are so important for, for really forever. Uh, and, and getting that right and making sure in the early days when you're like, all you're thinking is survival, you carve out enough time for company ideology for mission, value, vision. What do we believe? What do we stand for as a company? Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do that because no one's looking at you, no one cares. Right. All the, only, the only people that care are the 15 people in the room. Uh, and so that's a really tough thing to do. So getting the ideology right it was, was a critical factor early on that helped us scale later and break through some of those tough sort of challenges because survival is, is the number one thing in the beginning. Um, I'd say the next phase of growth is, is, is or the next critical thing is uh, working, continue to working on, continue working on the brand um, through that, let's just say you're in a million dollars in revenue now going to 10. Um, brand development and understanding what other people uh, see in the brand. So first you've, you've done your, your core and you've sort of created a brand but no one's looking. The second is, all right, how, do, how are people viewing that brand? What does the brand represent in the space that you're tackling? Uh, and that's com- that combined with a, with a really, really solid product, of course, um, can go really far. But you told me actually once, and this, is the, this gets to the third, um, you know, the product's not going to sell itself. One time John came to my office, he's like, how are you guys doing? We were in a rut, I think, and we were, we were like, you know, the product's amazing, the people are using, love it, uh, our people are great, you know, all these things, and we just, we're not, like, we're just not growing the way we should. Uh, once they're on the platform, they're, they're, they're raising a ton of money, and we're getting these amazing testimonials, uh, but new people aren't finding us, and I thought the brand and the product was the equation. Uh, turns out a distribution model is the third piece. So he said, well, why don't you take some of the money you have in the bank and hire a salesperson? And I was like, I, you know, I was an engineer. I, I, I thought the product would sell itself. I, also, like, I love brand and all that, as you can tell. Uh, and, and that was like a different thing for me. So, we, so John actually recommended uh, our first um, salesperson who became our VP of sales, who scaled the company from $1 to $10 million in annual recurring revenue and beyond. Uh, and, and that was a critical moment where I started to understand the balance of what a human could do on the phone and what they could teach and educate a prospect uh, and connecting that with a brand and a powerful product was really sort of the third piece of that. Um, but I'd say the most challenging thing for us was not only that first hire, but building out that distribution model and putting it all together. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I remember that conversation <laughs> vividly. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, I, I think... One of the things, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, more you know, down the line, but um, I think one of the things that's critical as an entrepreneur is that um, you've got to be great at certain things, um, and one of those things you have to be great at is to realize, like, you know what, this is not my DNA, right? So as you said, you're an engineer, you're a product guy, a brand guy, a culture guy, um, a, you know, a whole long list of things. Sales and a sales organization just had not been as much in your experience set at the time and hadn't seen the value of it. And, um, you know, for you to sort of move outside that comfort zone and say, you know what, 
seems like this is a good path for us to go down um, and to really entrust the person that you hired and then all the people that she hired um, and, and to really get behind that and, and see the success, like, again, is critical in, in any organization like that. So, you know, have you seen, um, have you seen that the, the culture or the ideology that you talked about, has that needed to evolve over time? I mean, I know it's not exactly the same today as it was before, but has it changed dramatically? Has it changed based on the stage that you're in as a company? I, or uh, a culture is a, uh, to look at it as like a living thing because it's really a collection of people. So in the early days, that was first 15, you're, you're planting the seed and you're watching this thing grow. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like the, the folks that are there can guide the culture, they can manicure it, they can pour water on it. This is a weird now, you know, metaphor. Um, but they, they can't, they can't like, they literally can't design exactly what it's going to look like. They right. literally just have to sort of guide it and make sure there's a framework for it to show up the right way once, mm-hmm. it's, once it's sort of blossoming. Um, and, and that really comes down to the values, mostly. There's the vision and the mission. There's the values. Um, we have six core values. And I'd like to say that we... What are we, they? Oh, man, he's going to put me on the spot. Stand for something, lead by example, adapt and overcome, um, create meaningful value, uh, think big, uh, yeah, think big and execute smart. Okay. And was that five or six? I think it was six. Okay, that's close enough. Uh, no, uh, but the stand for something is, is my favorite actually, and that is, comes back to the, the beginning part. But the the values are um, you know what will guide you, what will help that sort of culture grow. But e- these things, you know, like the, those those six, we've actually added two over the years. Uh, the mission statement changed. Our mission statement now is to empower uh, and mobilize and empower the world for good. Uh, it didn't start off that way. It started off as a variation of that. But every single year, we check back in on this and let the new people contribute, poke holes in it. Like, our vision statement's changed a bunch of times. Directionally, it's pretty much the same. But, like, the, the words matter and the way people perceive it matter. Um, so the, the, our vision is uh, for every social cause um, to have enough funding that it can be solved, basically. And so that has taken a ton of iterations, but essentially what we're doing is empowering organizations to solve social problems, and the end state of this is that they have enough funding where they can actually solve the problem. Um, and charities literally will say, the good ones will say, I want to put myself out of business, and we're kind of helping them put themselves out of business in a way, which is interesting. Wow. So it took a long, look, it took a, a, it's a mental gymnastics, but it took a while to get there, and it takes a lot of iteration. So to answer your question, um, absolutely. And it's sure. so important to let new people in on that and not say, hey, this is, the, this is the book, this is the way it's been always, you know. Uh, let them contribute and, and not be, uh, and ha- have some humility and let them poke holes, because right. uh, it, it will only get better. Well, yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, you can't, you can't tell people what the culture is. They have to internalize it, right? It has to be um, something that they embrace and that they feel like they're part of, right? I mean, that's culture. You're part of the culture. Um, and therefore, you know, they have to feel like they really, you know, understand it. Yeah, I remember, um, so I was at a company called Active Network, uh, and you know, one of our biggest challenges, and, and probably one of my biggest fears at the time, you know, we were about 150, 200 people. It ended up being like a couple of thousand um, uh, person company. And what I saw when we went from 150 or 200, you know, beyond that was um, what had gotten us to 200 and gotten us very, you know, to be successful at that point was everybody felt like they had real ownership around the outcome of the company. Right, so we had a sales team, and every single one of them realized they each had their own market, and everyone realized, like, boy, if we don't hit our hit the mark in this market or this space or whatnot, the company is going to fall short. We're going to miss our number, and that could be a big problem. We had a relatively small tech team, 
it was the same thing, right? So if we don't get, we don't ship this product and these features, we're going to falter in this market, and then we're going to, you know, we're going to miss our number. We're going to have a big issue. And then once we got beyond that 150 to 200, it became harder for everybody to feel like owners, even though everybody had stock options. It was harder for people to feel like owners of the company and of the business and of the direction of the outcome. Um, and and you started getting more into employee territory. And getting employees to really, you know, buy into that um, is is a challenge. And you know, obviously, you guys are super focused on this, and it'll be something that uh, you know I know you'll do well. But it's cha- it's very challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you raised, you know, as Mike mentioned, raised over fifty million dollars of VC money. Um, you know, how does that change things? And and let me frame the question a little bit in a couple of ways. Um, there's the short-term thinking versus well, start there. Short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. Yep. You know, just raising all that money and having outside forces and a bunch of different, you know, bosses, so to speak. Does that change anything? Um, yes, for, for the better, though. I think you need to know what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will just choose VC because it seems the, like the right move or the right path or they write it about it on TechCrunch or whatever. But uh, it really does depend on the industry and, and, the, and the capital that you need to scale. It's, mm-hmm. it's expensive to scale a software company. Um, if I were to do it again, maybe I could do it with less capital, but you would still need capital. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a capital-intensive um, uh, business. Um, so it does change things, I think, for the better. I'll back up. One of the, the best things about the, the fundraising process is just validating your idea. Yeah. It's like, you know, you go in and you meet with all these people. You guys have seen Silicon Valley, that show, and he goes down Sand Hill Road. I won't get into the details of that, that part of the episode. Um, uh, it's called the Sand Hill Road Shuffle, and I did that myself, and I went to all of these different Silicon Valley firms, and we got no's straight out. Like, I mean, we raised our first $5 million of that 50 from all angel investors, mainly from people in, you know, in San Diego and beyond, um, and we were lucky to find three angel investors that first put in 100000 or so, and then up, there, up the ante all the way to about a million each, and they were really just... Um, successful entrepreneurs that had a foundation or something uh, that understood the connection between the business world and, and, and social uh, impact. And one of them was the uh, co-chairman of Invesco, Invesco Field, the big insurance company. Yeah. Uh, and he literally cold called us and, and he said, you know, I've started this foundation and we're granting this money to um, uh, X charity in Texas. And, and they started using your platform. Are you guys looking for angel investors? I mean, it was like the, it's not that easy, by the way, but that was like the, the, yeah. the, that was like the easiest one. And this guy was great. He was like an evangelist for it. So we got really lucky with some amazing people. But, I mean, we were living $25,000 at a time back then. And it took us a long time to take that sort of $5 million and turn it into something that a, a VC would say, this is an investable opportunity for me. We're going to see the right type of returns. Um, outside of our biggest competitor, Blackbaud, which is now a 3 or $4 billion public company. And they've done, <laughs> they, they've done very well. But... Uh, they're really the only one in our space that's made it that far. And so there was nothing, to, outside of them, there was really nothing to point to and say, wow, there's a lot of successes in this space. Or you know, how, how is, can there be another BlackBot? Can two people win in this space? Win. Uh, and and it's very like, sort of linear um, thinking. And for us, it, we, were, we, we, we thought we were fundamentally doing something different than BlackBot. Yes, we are building fundraising software, um, but we feel like the way we're approaching it uh, we're looking at it from the donor and fundraiser's perspective. Um, we are bringing new people into the fold, and philanthropy is just fundamentally different in various ways. <laughs> we wanted to get into all that. But once we got tighter at that story, VC started to say, I get it. Like, it's not just about you know, what's played out over the last 10 years. This is actually something brand new. But it took me a long time to be able to, to get that succinct. Hmm. Um, so the, the last, you know, I guess, 
30, or sorry, 45 million came from VCs. The first round was led by Mithril Capital Management up in Silicon Valley, it's, uh, one of Peter Thiel's funds. Um, Salesforce invested as well in bullpen capital. And then the second one was led by a local firm here, JMI, uh, who we're super excited to have brought on. Yeah, uh, each, each phase of growth is different. So the VC coming in is looking at your company and saying, all right, like, here's what this guy and the company's selling us, right? Like you're pitching, you're saying this is the vision and everything, and they, they do a deep dive into your financials and everything else. So every round of funding comes with a whole new set of rules, a whole new set of accountability. Uh, and once you, if you understand that going in and you look at it like a challenge as a CEO, not like adversarial, uh, like I literally look at JMI and I say, these guys know a lot more than me. Like they're going to help me get to the next level. This is my first rodeo. You know, yeah. started with a pub crawl. Let's not forget, you know. Right. And so... When we're talking to someone like JMI, we bring them in. I'm learning from them. This isn't like a, hey, like I got to just report to you all the time. This is like these guys are have a portfolio company of, you know, they were first investors in ServiceNow. Like oh, I can learn a lot from these guys. Yeah. And so looking at it that way changes the relationship from day one. Uh, and and I, I look at those as just like you would in, in a dating relationship. Honestly, it's like you have to invest time. Like they need to get to know me. It's not just about that diligence process. So it changes the way that I operate. I think for the better. Yeah. It raises the bar. It layers the accountability. It's stressful at times, but if you know what you're getting yourself into, I think it, it honestly elevates the entire company. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think one of the things that Scott touched on, and he didn't put a fine point on it like this, so I'll, I'll do it, which is, um, I think as an entrepreneur, and it's clear that Scott embodies this, that one of the toughest things about being an entrepreneur is that you have to fully embody and embrace two characteristics which are always in conflict with each other, okay? So on the one hand, you have to be able to, you have to be open-minded, you have to, there's no way to be successful, in my opinion, there's no way to be successful unless you're tapping into folks who have more experience than you, learning, you know, exactly like what Scott talked about. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, you have to be so stubborn and so willful that you can ignore everything else that's going on, every obstacle in your way, every, you know, day that you wake up and everybody else feels like, you know, it's doom and gloom and you're dead and, and you're in the trough of sorrows or, you know, whatever other, those, you know, theories are. So you, you have to be open-minded enough to listen to folks but you also have to be selective enough to know when to ignore folks and plow forward and, and you know, make it happen and, and will you know, things to, uh, to occur. So, like a cockroach. It, it's like a cockroach. That's exactly right. Um, i got to work on that. Do you, ever, do you ever find that you're in conflict? Do you ever find that, um, yeah, that, that there's a conflict between um, being a, a company that's focused on social good and you know, trying to help the world, so to speak, um, with your endeavors? Uh, on, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, um, you know, I mean, VCs, most VCs, and I, I know the ones that are in your company, I mean, they're not, yes, they individually care about social good in the world, but, like, they care about return for shareholders. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there's always going to be trade-offs between those things. How do you yep. manage that? Yeah, and that, that was actually one of the things that made it hard to raise money initially. I mean, people used to say, like, are you a charity? Um, are you actually a, a for-profit right. company? Um, but I, I think the times have changed. I mean, I, I, if you polled the students in this room, I, I bet a, a large majority would be interested in social impact or some field that's connected to social impact, whether that's the intersection of technology and social impact or whatever. Um, but companies around the globe are realizing that um, to, to retain employees, to bring great people to their company, mm -hmm. they need to have a social mission yep. intertwined with their financial mission. Uh, and I think we were on the early, early side of this. Uh, and, and, you know, we live it every day because our, literally our clients are uh, 
social impact organizations. Um, but we're a for-profit company, so we do have to toe that line. Um, but I think you know, it, it not only is the investment landscaping and the way people think about social good changing, um, but the way people run nonprofits is changing as well. It isn't just about hey, the old school sort of charity mindset where they're they're asking for money in their handouts. They they actually there's, there's a whole other level of accountability in the charitable world as well. And they're mm-hmm. thinking about uh, you know how do I articulate my impact and measure my impact more like a for-profit business would. Um, so I think that's that's kind of interesting uh, as well. We've kind of touched on this, but I'd be interested to get a little bit more of your, your take on it. Um, so building a company, you know, the, the, the saying is, you know, it takes a village, right? It's like, it's like raising kids. I mean, I often think building a company is a lot like raising kids, um, more than I would like it to be. Uh, and, you know, you've got to recruit a team, you've got to recruit a board of directors, you've got to recruit advisors, you've got to manage all those, you've got to manage your time. Um, how have you gone about managing that and, you know, what's your, what's your approach then? Work and play. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I now have two kids as well, right. which is, uh, has been, has been uh, stressful, but a blessing as well. Of course. Um, it's, you know, it's really hard. And actually, you know, one of the things that we've tried to drive is, is, a, is a work-life balance in general um, with our employees. I don't, you know, no one, no one sort of sneers at you if you leave at five or four. Um, you know, it's, it, we encourage um, healthy lifestyles and going out and working out during, during the middle of the day. And I think that's sort of the new, the new way of doing things. Um, for me, like, I, you know, I think understanding yourself and having a self-awareness of what makes you tick is really important and being able to communicate that to your employees and your wife and, and others. And for me, I need alone time, actually. Um, I actually tend to be a little bit on the introverted side. And we did, did this amazing thing in our company retreat recently called Strength Finders. Uh, and it yeah. brings out your top five strengths. And, and then you can talk to someone else about their strengths. Are. It's really interesting. It's 34 traits. I'd encourage you guys to go do it. You learn a lot about yourself that way. And one thing that came out is that, you know, not just typically when you talk about introverts, like you energize alone. Um, but one of the traits that came out was futuristic. I like to put myself 10 years from now and just think about that. Not like about drones and all these other things. It's more just I like planning out my own life and thinking about it that way. And I need to be alone to do that. And that's how I actually come back with uh, and, and I show up the, in the best way in the, in the present moment. Yeah. And that was a really interesting thing. And I think, uh, you know, creating those opportunities to recharge, regardless of what your schedule is or what you're doing or what you like doing, but having that self-awareness to invest in, your, in, in understanding yourself more mm-hmm. uh, and, and bringing that into your daily life, whether it's business or work, has been cr- uh, critical for me. Wow. And, and communicating that with your, your partner or your, I mean, your partner at home is the same as your founders and your partner at work in a lot of ways. Uh, so just being open and honest about your strengths and weaknesses, I think, is, is, has been critical. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I, I, just to build on the point around, you know, think 10 years or for folks, 20 years or 30 years, um, throughout my career, I've often thought about the same thing. And, um, you know, you're faced, with, you're faced with so many different really important decisions, right? So do I go on this path or do I go on this path? Do I take this job or, you know, whatever? Do I try to get this promotion? And, you know, what I've found over and over for myself or for other people is that often um, what is the hard decision to make today and might feel like, um, you know, you're giving up something really great and easy and whatnot for something that's going to be really hard or unknown, you got to put yourself 20, 30 years out, right? And think about when I look back on this decision, how will I have judged it? What's the most likely situation where I've said, eh, I wish I went that way or I'm glad I went that way? And it usually becomes pretty clear, right? And you can, you can actually play these mind games with yourself um, where you, know, you, you, you reduce a bunch of the stress around the decision and, and the hard choice that you have to make today and what you're going to go through over the next month or two or, or whatnot um, 
if you think about it in the context, right? And again, it's the same thing with a startup. There's a ton of, you know, we can say this all the time, like there's a ton of difficult periods and you're gonna be riding high and then all of a sudden that's gonna fall off and then it's gonna fall off further <laughs> and then it's gonna be riding high. And you know, you gotta look past that and think five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, am I gonna be glad I stuck with it? Or am I going to be glad, you know, I, I Yeah, I think pra- practicing that mental toughness in the moment, but having the perspective right. allows you to be tougher in the, in the present, I think. Uh, right. We've certainly had a lot of those precarious moments, for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you wouldn't have gotten here this far. Yeah. Or gotten yes. this far if you yes. Okay, so last question. Um, and I, I think it um, addresses a portion of the audience uh, directly. So I'm a budding entrepreneur. Um, and you know, I'm obviously I'm interested in um, innovation and, and uh, entrepreneurship and startups and technology and all those kind of things. Like, what's one good piece of advice um, that uh, that you can give to those folks? I think uh, coming back on an earlier comment, I think there's sort of twofold. Uh, one is be curious. So you know, sniff out the opportunities. Just look, you know, be observant of the world around you and. Look at things that you're interested in, and, and, and you don't even have to overanalyze it. Don't, don't worry about it. Find those things you're interested in and, and follow them. So be curious and just keep following them, and, and good things will absolutely happen. So that's number one. When you do sort of follow something and you start to realize you're very passionate about something, um, I, I, I call that standing for something. I don't think standing for th- something is political necessarily or, or any of that. I think it's just being super passionate about a particular topic or solving a certain problem. Uh, and bringing that to the table and showing up with a perspective and having an opinion and bringing people in the fold. Uh, and that's magical, in my, in my opinion. And so be curious. Not everyone's going to be able to just turn on a light bulb and say, here's exactly what I stand for as a human being. Here's my purpose. So be curious first and, f- and find that and be relentless until you find that. Yeah. And when you find it, don't let go. So, so make it your own and, and stand for that in life. And I think that that's... And, and, you know, business will come from, from that. You do that, and good things will come. You'll find yourself in a business. You'll become an entrepreneur. Like, I, I didn't go to entrepreneur school. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. I think it's amazing. Um, I, I didn't actually ever even envision myself starting a business. Um, but this is what was put in front of me, uh, and we just kept going. And we were curious, and then eventually we stood for something. And, and what we stand for is, you know, bringing technology to the social sector. Great. I agree. Um, you know, one last point that I want to throw out there um, and this is a little bit of a, uh, I guess it's not a plug for my company, but it's, uh, I guess it's an offer, which is, um, you know, for me, I've found in my career the, the challenge, it, put yourself in the most challenging situations possible. Um, you know, the couple of times that I've been lucky enough to, you know, take a step forward um, in my career is when I was able to candidly talk my way into a job that I really had no business having. Um, and I was completely unqualified for and I was somehow, or, or you know, something at school or whatever, find a way to put yourself in a position where you are so uncomfortable that there are days you literally want to cry. And because what happens is, you know, I, I think there's two paths you can take, right? One is where you put yourselves in a position of comfort, okay? And um, what happens is you're relatively comfortable and you're learning but within six months, you're really comfortable, and within 12 months, you're overly comfortable, and you're not learning and developing enough, okay? And, that's, and then, you know, you either make a change or you don't, but you've got a bunch of time in there where you're not learning as much as you could. Then you've got um, the other scenario, which is you put yourself in a situation where, you know, not that you absolutely know you're going to fail, but you know you can work your way into and be resourceful enough and, and creative enough to be successful, but you are going to learn so much in those first six months. Then you get 
you know, you start to get comfortable and you hit your stride for another six to 12 months. And then, you know, you're on your way to your next challenge. I don't mean leaving your company um, or whatever you're doing. I mean, you know, take the next step up or, you know, take on more responsibility. Um, and, you know, going back to what Anthony was saying, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the answer is to make yourself as miserable as possible, right? You need to have techniques like he talked about um, and like Scott has talked about, how you can manage all that. Um, all I'm saying is, you know, push yourself. Don't doubt yourself. Do, you know, think you can do, convince yourself you can do more than you think you can do today. And that's how you'll end up being successful in this business. So. Told you it was awesome. So with that, um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.